first, what is Philippians even about, right? Why did Paul write Philippians? Uh, the church at Philippi was Paul's first church plant, actually. Um, and at one point, Paul was arrested for casting a demon out of someone. And so the church that he planted at Philippi sent him a gift while he was in prison. And after he got that gift, he wrote this letter as, um, as kind of a, a thank you in response. So it's like the, the most spiritual thank you note in history or something like that. Um, but Paul doesn't waste the opportunity here uh, with just a thank you letter. He doesn't waste an opportunity to teach. Um, he's, uh, he's intent on shepherding and guiding through this letter. Um, based on the types of things Paul addresses it seems like the church at Philippi was pretty healthy, spiritually speaking, um, and doing well in spiritual maturity. Uh, we can kind of see that in contrast to some of the other letters that Paul wrote uh, to churches at the time where he had to sort of rebuke them and encourage them on to better uh, ways of, of um, operating as a church. Uh, but he's encouraging them here. Um, he's not saying, you know, good job, you're good. He's, he's encouraging them on to greater spiritual maturity uh, because that's what he says God has called him to do as well with Jesus as his example. So and what does spiritual maturity look like to Paul? What does it look like in this letter? Um, Paul references multiple places through the letter um, spiritual maturity looking at like things like selflessness, humility, um, good works of the Spirit, service and sacrifice to one another, putting other people's needs above ours, and relying on the power of Christ's gospel at work in us to do it. And that together, we will grow in looking like Christ. Uh, this is what it looks like to be spiritually mature. So this is the context for what we have in this passage right here. Um, so let's just jump into it and see what's here. Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already attained this. What is this that he's talking about, right? It's sort of hard jumping into the middle of a section. So we'll, we'll tackle what he's talking about in terms of this in the previous verse, uh, in the verses coming before it. He's talking about that Christ's righteousness is going to be ours at the end of all things. And he's saying that by any means possible, I may attain resurrection from the dead, is what he says. And he's trying to make sure that people don't misunderstand what that means. That resurrection from the dead and the perfection that comes with it is a when Jesus returns situation, um, not something that has already happened for him. Um, and so he's saying that I haven't already attained this perfection. And this is important because there are people who try to warp the gospel and try to say, like, if you are not perfect right here, right now, you're not a Christian. Paul's saying very clearly right here that is not true. Um, so just, just a, a quick note on that. Um, just remember that. And that's helpful for, for me anyways um, to know that the writer of Scripture is saying that he's not perfect, right? Like, that's, I, I got junk, you know? Like, it's encouraging for me. You have junk. It's encouraging to know that God is working through broken people to bring his word to his people. So what does he say? He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. It's really important that he's using this kind of repetitive already phrase because he's saying this is, this is a big deal. 
Uh, he's really intent on what's ongoing and not complete. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, a lot of times I've looked at my life and said, you know, I'm, I'm still doing, I'm doing pretty good, you know. That's, that's it. I made it. I'm holy now. Um, and, and that's not true. There is danger in thinking this way. And Paul's trying to talk about the fact that we who are spiritually mature consider our continuing sanctification, not that we are already perfect. But he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. This is a fascinating phrase because he's saying, I'm, I'm doing something, I'm pressing forward, and yet Christ has already done something for me. Like, there's a completed work in Christ, and yet I'm still doing something, right? That it's not that when I believed, I was plucked out and taken to heaven, right? That I'm continuing to do something. So this, this act of pressing on is a, uh, is a spiritually mature act that comes out of an understanding of what Christ has done for us. So Paul set up a few things for us right off the bat. He says, I'm not perfect, and I'm still working. Christ is perfect. He's done the work already to make me himself, or to, make, to take me to himself. And we will be perfected through him if we press on and strive. So what is this striving? What is this, this, this goal that we're shooting for? If our perfection is our goal, what does it look like then for us to strive? We're going to spend most of our time this morning in the next statement in, uh, in what he tackles here um, in verse 13. Um, so just consider this as we move on. Um, that this is going to be one of the trickiest concepts, at least for me. This is one of the trickiest concepts in my faith, that what he's about to tackle. Um, so let's see what he says here. Um, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in God and Christ Jesus. I love how he starts that sentence, but one thing I do. Like, I don't, I'm always looking for like, quick ways to accomplish things. I think efficiency is pretty sweet. Um, and I like that Paul just kind of says, like, this one thing, this is it. Pay attention to this one thing. Um, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what's ahead. Forgetting what lies behind. What does that mean? What is he talking about when he says forget? I want to argue this morning that he's not talking about some sort of Christian amnesia. Um, that there are things that we are to remember in our Christian life. He's not saying, forget everything behind us and just go forward. And why, why am I able to say this? Let's take a look at a couple of places. Um, Paul's not keeping in mind uh, what's behind but he's also not disregarding it in Ephesians 2.11. Uh, if we just jump over there, Ephesians 2.11 says this, Therefore remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope 
without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, he keeps talking about the past, right? He keeps reminding them of who they were, who they were, who they were. Why is he doing this? For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the divining wall of hostility. He's talking about the difference between where you were and where you are. You were dead. You are now alive. And it's this amazing picture of the past and the present. Um, and so, and he's actually literally saying, remember these things, right? He's not saying forget them, remember them. And why is that important? Why is it important to remember? Um, let's head over to Luke 7, 41 through 47. Jesus is telling a parable about uh, a moneylender who, uh, who had a debt. And he says, a moneylender who had two debtors, um, one, followed five, uh, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? And this woman that's being talked about here was widely known as a prostitute in the community. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. He's showing the contrast between what it looks like for someone who feels like they're a righteous person and someone who knows they're a sinner, how they respond to their Lord and Savior. Therefore, I tell you, he says, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. This is why Paul thinks it's important to remember in Ephesians why, it's in, why we have sin and we need to remember our past and what God saved us from. That that's not something to forget. Sin in our lives, believe it or not, helps us love God more. Not that that, that means we should sin more. That's absolutely not what's being said. But there is a reality to what God's doing in His grace towards us that when we have sin in our lives, his cross looks so much bigger. That he would love us in that way, even when we're so junked up. So remembering what God has saved us, for, saved us from helps us love him more deeply. And this isn't a, uh, a once-the-prayer-is-prayed kind, of, uh, kind of remembering. We're talking about sin uh, not just that he saved us from when we confessed belief in Christ. We're talking about all the time, day-to-day -day stuff. We still are broken. We're still selfish. We still have things that we're working out. And this is what's being talked about. This kind of remembering is talking about all of the sin in life. The undeserved grace that he's shown in taking the punishment for my stuff onto himself so that I can be washed clean. Forgive and forget is not in the Bible. 
I just got to say that out loud. You cannot find that phrase in the Bible. You are forgiven, so don't forget it. So what is he forgetting? In Philippians, we see him say straight up, I'm forgetting what lies behind and straining forward for what is ahead. So what is this that he's actually forgetting? Jesus tells us there's some eternal ramifications to things that we should indeed forget. Um, Let's go back to Luke again. Um, This is the the supplemental passage that we read earlier um, where someone's asking, um, or Jesus is asking someone to follow him. And he says, I need to go and, uh, and say goodbye to my family first. And Jesus responds very strangely, right? No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. God, Jesus wasn't plowing a field. He wasn't, you know, asking this guy to come plow a field. So what is he doing here? Why does he respond this way? Um, when God brings you from death to life, he's given you a job to do. Your response is immediately, it should be to tell others about what's just been done for you. If you know the depth of your sin and you know that Jesus has taken that on himself, your response, it's to share it. That's your job. And the Bible talks about that sharing, that, that, uh, that distribution of the gospel as sowing seeds that, that there are seeds of truth that you're sowing into people's lives that will grow into fruit. And so what Jesus is doing is he's calling to that sharing of the gospel. He's saying, come and follow me in the sacrifice of myself and move into this work that I've put you to do, this work of plowing the field, preparing it for the seed of truth. So when he says no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God, He's saying, no one takes on this task and then looks back at being dead and says, I'd rather do that. That's not someone who's fit for the kingdom of God, is essentially what he's saying. So self-sacrifice, humbling yourself, serving others, if you're in this process, looking back on your old and dead ways, wanting those instead makes you unfit for the kingdom of God because you don't have your faith rooted in Jesus, in the power of what he's done for you. So again, we're not talking about an amnesia here. The looking back is not, uh, is not uh, uh, it's, you, you still have the, the understanding of the fact that whatever's back there is still back there. It's the heart of what's going on. It's the heart of going like, uh, I would rather be doing that, right? So take a look at how Paul talks about this, um, about his own past before Christ and his dead works apart from saving faith in Jesus. Uh, Back in Philippians, actually, just before this, in in 3, verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4, he talks about this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, um, he's talking about... uh, basically just not being confident in and of yourself. And he's bringing up all these things to say, I have every right to be confident in myself if I were to do that. Um, He says, though I I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal. He's just listing off all of these attributes that make you a perfect Jew, basically. That if you were to look at somebody, you would look at Paul and say, like, he's got it all together. He's doing it all right. He says, a persecutor of the church, 
um, to righteousness under the law, blameless. Um, but whatever I gain, or but whatever gain I had, he says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. Paul was quote-unquote perfect in the dead life. But what does he say? It's worthless in comparison because of knowing Christ. In light of who Christ is and what he did for us, Paul said all those things that I thought I was doing right were worthless. Not only that, but he says everything, not just the right things, everything is loss because he knows the worth of knowing Christ. He's remembering these things, not as things that he desires, right? But as things that he no longer desires, because his desires have been transformed. He now wants Christ-like living. He wants gospel-empowered selflessness. It's a whole different ballgame. He sees the works that he was trying to do in selfish ambition and says, that's the worst. It doesn't even compare to what we have before us. In other words, his mind may be remembering them, but his heart has moved on to others' desires. And the other ways are behind him now, and his heart has forgotten them so that he can strive, so that he can move forward. Um, so again, we're not talking about like some kind of blackout that you're just, uh, when you become a Christian, you just forget everything that happened. It's not blackout, it's, it's show out. Are you guys familiar with this term, show out? Some, some of the hip kids are using these days. Um, no, so uh, I don't really even know how to use it right, pr- properly. But I do know that it's primarily used in sports. Um, that when a, when a player does really good, apparently he showed out. I don't know, is there anybody young in here that can verify this for me? Um, show out is like uh, when you did really good in sports, and, and I don't know, there's a really important game happening later today, and I'm a little preoccupied with that, um, but I even made my tabs green and blue, just so, go Hawks. I see you Seahawks shirts out there. Anyways, uh, so I bring this up because I ran across this video the other day that was a compilation of all of the times that a football player in uh, recorded history has gotten to the goal line and then dropped the ball before they got in the end zone. I don't know, so some people might not know how uh, football works, but you, you have to get the ball across the line and even just the tip, like you don't have to get the whole thing. It's like the fraction of an inch, you got a touchdown, that's it. But they're running and for one reason or another, whether it's them and, you know, driving it or it's somebody hitting it, they just don't get to the end zone, right? And uh, I, I just felt like that was a really helpful image for what we're talking about here. Because, like, we're, we're in this race, right? Paul talks about that a lot, that this is a race, the race of, of, uh, of the Christian life that we need to endure to the end, right? And so in that endurance, what are we doing in order to have that kind of endurance that allows us to not only, you know, it was so funny, some of the players, they would look behind and realize how far ahead they were. And then they would just, boop, and then they'd be in the end zone. And they would be celebrating, thinking they got a touchdown, and all their teammates are like, you doof. Like, we don't want to be the doof at the end of our lives going, we're fine, right? I'm good. I'm all good. 
We also don't want to be this other guy, the, the other group of, of people who dropped the ball were um, the ones that didn't look behind, or maybe it's not the looking behind, but they just forgot that there were other players on the field chasing them down with all they had, right? And, uh, and they would just kind of be celebrating and, and whatever, and they'd just come and strip the ball right at the goal line, right? There is the enemy seeking us like that. He wants to tear us down in this effort of striving forward. And it's all about where your heart is. That's, that's what I took from that video anyways, was just looking at these players and thinking like, what are they thinking? Where is their heart in this? And sometimes it's pride, right? Sometimes it's laziness, maybe. Like they're like, I've been playing a long game. I'm just going to drop the ball now. Uh, sometimes it's selfishness, right? It's not focusing on the reality that you play on an entire team. Just because you caught the pass and you're at the end, you have to get it in the end zone. Otherwise, the team doesn't get to have any benefit. So forgetting what lies behind, what is this referring to? Uh, let's look at Hebrews 12.1. Hebrews 12.1 says this, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside every hindrance, right? He's using the same words here. The laying aside of the hindrances are the sins. Those are the things in our life that we want to cling to. But these are also the things Paul's calling us to forget in Philippians that forget what lies behind, right? Paul has laid aside the hindrances, and now he's saying, forget about them. They're lying there behind you. They are not helpful to you. They will hinder you in the race. So these are the things that he's talking about when he says, forget what lies behind. So Paul's given us in this section so far that we are Christ's, right? I am Christ's. He's made me his own. I'm remembering where I came from, but only as it points to him and counting everything that isn't more deeply knowing Christ as worthless, that that doesn't have any worth in comparison to more deeply knowing Christ. We're also thinking about the upward call of Christ, that that's before us, right? God will call us to himself, and that thought is empowering me to strain forward for the prize. The prize being that perfection, right? In him, together with one another. It's not just me, it's us together. And so this is what we're going to see for the rest of the passage. We're finally going to get the answer of why I'm not already perfect. Uh, so just to reiterate, I'm Christ's, nothing else matters. I'm working toward his perfection by his spirit in me. And now we build each other up. Okay, but before that, Paul throws this really awesome parenthetical in here, uh, and, and he says, look, um, what is it? right in, uh, where is it? Oh, it's because I'm on the wrong page. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will also reveal this to you. God will reveal this to you. I don't know, it's so fascinating that Paul's so sure of what he's saying right now that he's like, even if you don't think like this, God is going to reveal it to you. So, like, this is a really important statement that he's making. Um, 
and he's not holding it lightly. So now, uh, here's where we turn from the personal to the mutual, and we talk about this as a church. Um, He says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. We should spend a little bit of time here uh, to get on the same page of the importance of the use of us. Paul was being pretty personal before this, but he's transitioning to talk about this us and we concept. An individualistic understanding of what we have already attained doesn't do justice to Paul's theme that will start to come out here in this passage, and arguably is the theme of the whole book, Um, not just of Philippians, but of the Bible, the narrative of what God has sown throughout history and what he will do throughout eternity. The theme of gaining community as a whole in how we experience and live out our partnership in the gospel. There's been progress already uh, in the history of the Philippian church that Paul talks about uh, in verse one, uh, sorry, chapter one, verse five. There's common sharing in the spirit that he talks about in chapter two, verse one, and there's participation in Christ's suffering together, uh, ver- uh, chapter three, verse 10. And uh, Paul's primary concern, though, here is that we gain this partnership together and that accomplishing that could very likely be destroyed, he says, by selfish pursuits. And he talks about that, and you can just write it down and look it up, uh, chapter 1, 17, and 2, verse 3. That accomplishing this togetherness of what God's called us to could be destroyed by selfish pursuits. Um, So what they've already gotten in terms of unity and partnership has to be maintained, not by selfish pursuits, but by humility. He says that in chapter 2, verse 3. The kind of humility that we see in Christ, who, the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross for us. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. And the humility we see in Paul, right? Who lost all things to gain Christ, becoming like him in his death. It says in chapter 3, 8 through 10. So forgetting what lies behind and striving forward for what's ahead, that's what Paul is after, but he's after this together. So this partnership and co-participation theme continues. Uh, He says, join me, says brothers, in verse 17, brothers, join me in imitating. Uh, Join in imitating me. It's really important that we look at this not as Paul being prideful, saying like, I've got it together, imitate me, I'm the man. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, brothers, he's putting an equality statement together. I think some translations say brothers and sisters. He's being all-inclusive. He's saying, we are all, as Christians, on the same playing field. And this is important, because he's making a bold statement. Join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those And then he points outward, right? Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It's a plural, it's a corporate, it's it's an everybody's involved type of situation. And we know that he's not being prideful because he also talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That he's saying, you you can imitate my life because my life is in imitation of Christ. And additionally, he counts 
everything as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ Jesus. It's just an amazing thing that we even get to do that. That we have the ability to know God in Christ Jesus. We know that the beginning of knowledge, uh, Proverbs 1 says, the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So what does it mean to even fear the Lord? It means at least reverence, understanding that God is so much greater than we are, and that we're in awe, standing before a holy God, knowing that we are dust, we're a mist, here today, gone tomorrow. So the fear of the Lord at least means humility. It means looking to God as the fullness of everything and ourselves bringing nothing to the table. So if the beginning of knowledge, just knowledge in general, is the fear of God, then knowing Christ, having knowledge of God himself, as Paul talks about having knowledge of something that has surpassing worth, Knowing God in Christ Jesus requires at its inception, at its very beginning of the process, it requires humility. Counting everything of ourselves as loss, realizing that God's holiness is the only thing worthy of praise. And to prove this point, Paul's letter continues to turn our attention to the opposite of humility we see the opposite of co-laboring for Christ in the, in the passage to follow here. In verse 18, For many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Don't miss the power of this passage just um, by thinking that it means uh, there are some bad people out there that want what they want. Um, Paul, is, Paul is crying here. He is, he's crying over the state of the hearts of people who maybe were in Christ but have been pulled away by the distractions of selfish desire. This is a very weighty thing. So weighty that he calls them the enemies of the cross. What does that mean? What does it mean to be the enemy of, a cro- of the cross? Let's go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 23. Jesus is telling his disciples um, before uh, he goes um, to the cross um, that he is going to die. And his disciples are um, not happy with this because they want him for themselves, and they want to make sure that he doesn't die. So much so that Peter uh, takes Jesus aside in verse 22. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) Imagine that, right? Like, rebuking Jesus. Like, let's take some, you know. Uh, But (laughs) uh, it says, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And he's talking about the crucifixion. He's saying, no, this is never going to happen. You're going to stay with me. And I think he's probably saying, like, I will protect you or something. Uh, I don't know. But he just doesn't want this to happen, right? But Jesus has a pretty intense response to this. He turned to him and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
He calls him Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We're back to this concept of the difference between what God is doing and what man wants, right? On earthly things. So our selfish desires impede the glory of God in the sacrifice of His Son on the cross. That's what it means to be an enemy of the cross. When what you want is so much more important to you than what God is trying to do through you. That's what it means to be an enemy of the cross. And that's what he's talking about in this passage. So let's not be people preoccupied with earthly things. We just came out of this series on generosity, right? We learned a whole lot about how to understand the things that God's given us as gifts to give to other people. Let's really consider that as we dig in for this next year. Because what a sorrowful thing it is to see a Christian taken away by distraction of selfish desires. We need to pray against that. Because it's happening all the time, every day. And I pray it doesn't happen to you. So why don't we get distracted by this stuff? There is a fantastic phrase that Paul employs right here in 21, I'm sorry, in verse 20. But, he says, in contrast to that, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await our Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's an amazing understanding that we though we are here right now, are citizens of a completely different place. Uh, I, I'm saying his name wrong, but Ethelbert Stoffer, he's a German uh, Protestant theologian from the 1900s, said, we have our home in heaven, and here on earth we are a colony of heaven's citizens. It's a really helpful way to think about what we're doing here right now. Even though we are here, we have a whole other place to be, and we're from a whole other place. So we don't have to be consumed by these selfish desires of people who are really just trying to make life okay for themselves, right? Like, they're just, this is all they have. So you can't expect them to be doing anything beyond that because it's, this is all I have, so I just have to make this as comfortable as possible. This is not all we have. That's what Paul is saying. Our citizenship is somewhere else completely. So we don't have to just think about, like, how do I make myself happy right here, right now? God has you. You can invest your life in sacrifice to each other because God has an entirely different reality for you. So Jesus, when he finally, when he finally returns, will transform us into something different. And that's our hope. That's our hope that keeps us from being distracted by earthly things. It says that God, that Jesus has the power to transform our lowly body, this earthly body that we've been given, to be like his glorious body. And it's fascinating that he says, our lowly body. He's calling to our oneness in Christ. He's saying that, like, as the redeemed church of God, we are together going to be transformed when our Savior Jesus comes. It's going to be just like that. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, it talks about it. Um, Let's just go over there really quick. 1 Corinthians 15, 
51, it says this. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised. And he continues on in 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? In light of this, he's saying, oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives me? No, who gives us, us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's talking about a corporate understanding of salvation, something that's so much far beyond our understanding of ourselves. And so we see this through sacrifice to each other. So in Philippians right here, uh, we see that Paul's understanding, he's broken. I'm broken. You're broken. We're not perfect, right? And Christ is powerful to save even someone like me. And he's made me his own, so I work to make him so I work to make him mine. And that's a response to what he's done for me. That's not duty. That's not me just trying to do what's right. It's me recognizing that's the most amazing thing that's ever happened in the world. I have a response that I need to, that I need to tackle here. So we're praising him for what he's delivered us from. We're striving for self, selfless, humble opportunities to serve as he served. And who are we serving? We're serving one another, right? He will transform us. It's an amazing reality. So as we consider this passage in the coming days, as we're moving into the new year, um, I have a couple of things that I, I would love for us to meditate on. Um, if you're here today and you consider yourself a Christian, um, where is the citizenship of your heart? Are you occupied with looking back on all the fun things that you kind of gave up when you decided to follow Jesus? You feel like you're kind of missing out on it? You have like FOMO of your life? Has God become some kind of cosmic killjoy for you? You feel like all the good things and all the fun things other people are enjoying and you're not. I need you to know this morning that regardless of how you feel about that, your deepest joy will never be found in the things of this world. It'll be found in knowing Christ. So keep your focus on what's ahead. Regard, again, regardless of how you feel, know that he's given you a task to love in humility, sacrificing your own desires in service to one another. It doesn't sound logical, and I get it, but this is what the Bible says. This will bring you more satisfaction than any earthly pleasure ever could. By the power of Christ in you, in service to one another, you will see the glory of what God has for you. If you're here and you don't feel distracted by what lies behind, but uh, you feel like you're trying to strain forward for what's ahead, um, what does that look like for you? If that striving forward for what's ahead doesn't involve a deepening love and compassion for other believers, for the church, um, you may need to consider where your faith is rooted, where your faith is founded, because it might not be in Christ. A right theology of salvation 
is not individualistic. A proper understanding of the gospel doesn't terminate on the self. It propels the self onto unity with others who have believed and a desire to bring others in. So know that striving for what's ahead isn't simply bearing down and trying not to sin until Jesus comes back. Paul's pressing on here is reflecting and copying Christ's example for us. Christ's example of humbling himself to serve his own creation. How much more should we be able to love and serve one another? It's not worth the effort to just say to yourself, I should have a deeper affection for the church. Don't do that. Act in love first. Sacrifice your desires for someone else in the body and watch your affections change. God will do it. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, please know you're in a room full of imperfect people. You are in good company. Know that each person here has only received the power of the Holy Spirit by the work of someone who came before, by Jesus. We have an eternity living in unity with God, not because of anything we've done, but because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And he came and lived with us, fully God and fully human. Not to berate us or to beat us down for all the bad things we've done and whip us into shape and say, just do better. No, he came and he served us. He died for us. He died for you. And not after you got all your stuff together and started living better, right? No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's an amazing reality. Each of us is here in this room right now to stand as a beacon for the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ in all our imperfections. If you're not a Christian, you're in good company because none of us is perfect. And I want you to know that knowing Christ is the greatest pursuit of this entire life. There is nothing more worthy or rewarding that you can do with the time that God's given you here on earth than to seek the face of Jesus. So don't waste this time. Find one of us after. Ask us questions. Challenge what's bubbling up inside of you. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit is working. Find someone to talk to, to lead you, because God wants to lead you to a peace that's completely beyond your understanding. So God's plan was never to make us perfect immediately or to pluck us out of the earth and straight into heaven as soon as we say Jesus is Lord. We're left here not as some kind of punishment but as an opportunity to know Christ and the power of his grace through the cross by struggling through pain, sin, and loss with one another together, keeping our eyes on those who are Christ-like examples, selfless servants, humble, tireless pursuers of the goal of knowing Christ and making it to the end, having stood firm throughout their imperfections in the Lord, pointing to his greatness and not themselves. So what's the purpose for our imperfection? I believe in Christ. Why am I not already perfect? We're beacons of God's grace in Christ to an unbelieving world and to each other. 
our constant working and striving, in spite of our shortcomings, builds up one another because we realize it's by the Holy Spirit's power alone that we can sacrifice our desires for the needs of those around us. We're not alone. We are purposefully imperfect together. And we will be transformed one day. We'll be made perfect together. And until then, we're here to proclaim the greatness of a God who saved not just me and not just you, not any one person by themselves, but a whole people who admit they're hopeless sinners in need of the grace only Jesus provides. He's restoring this people for himself so that on that day, his power will be displayed in bringing broken, jacked up, selfish sinners like you and me into beautiful, perfect unity with him, enjoying him and praising him forever. Let's pray.